Thank you, Dave. Is this one on? Okay, didn't mean to fake you out. Uh, this is a great privilege for me to be able to talk with you in chapel today. And uh, we have some very special guests that are here. Uh, of course, last Sunday, January 20th, was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And uh, in coordination with that and other things that are going on, the chapel has been open for this particular purpose. And I was, I was asked by the Santa Clarita Valley Pregnancy Center to come and talk on the topic with you today, and it's a privilege for me to do that. But I've invited some guests from the center to come in as well. And uh, the first individual that I'd like to introduce to you who will introduce our other guest is the director of the Santa Clarita Valley Pregnancy Center, which is the frontline ministry here in the Santa Clarita Valley in this particular war that, that's raging all around us. She's a terrific lady, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy her and what she has to say. And then she's going to introduce some people that are very special uh, during this chapel period. So welcome Terry Elliott, if you would, the executive director. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I am so blessed to be here. Just, if we left right now, just after the singing, <laughs> that was wonderful. Um, let me just say a couple of words first, and then I have something to read with you, to share with you. We have with us today um, a real important member of our staff, Teresa Cassidy, who is a childbirth coach. She does a lot of things. She's a childbirth coach. She's also a counselor. And then with us also today is one of our clients, Myra, and someone else we're going to introduce later. And Myra, why don't you come up and stand with me right now? As she comes up, um, I want to share with you a couple of things that um, I hope blow some stereotypes for us. One of them is that Myra is a single parent, and she's supporting herself and her baby. She is working full-time, and she's going to school full-time. She came to us from Mexico having had a background in social work and having had worked as a social worker in Mexico and now has to do some uh, other work here in order to do that same social work here in the United States. So she's working very hard. Um, so what I'd like to share with you now is a story about a miracle from God. Through Myra, we have seen God's love and intervention take place. We have been blessed to know her, and I know you will be too. She's asked me to tell her, to tell you her story, and this is in her own words. Early in 1990, I was faced with the problem of an unplanned pregnancy. I was all alone with no one to help me make my decisions, no one to give me support if I decided to keep my baby. My employer, Sally Dickinson, at the Cornerstone Bookstore, suggested that I go to the SCB Pregnancy Center. I was already six months pregnant, so I didn't think that the center could help me. At first, I thought I shouldn't go to the center. I thought it was for teenagers, and I felt embarrassed that I was 24 years old. My feelings changed quickly. I felt everyone really cared for me and my circumstances. I feel like my counselor, Judy, and my childbirth coach, Teresa, are friends that I can tell anything. I trust them, and I know that they really care for me. If God hadn't sent the center to me, I don't know what I would have done. I don't even want to think about it. I would have been alone. There are several ways God has shown his grace to me. 
I was brought up in a church that taught me that you could be saved, but when you sinned, you would lose it forever and never get it back. I thought that because of the sin that led to my pregnancy, I had lost my salvation. Sally Dickinson again shared the gospel with me and referred me to Pastor Art Dolder of Christian Family Church. He counseled me and helped me to see the truth in Jesus Christ. Then when I counseled with Judy, she shared with me about the forgiveness which comes through Jesus Christ, and she gave me a Bible. I could hear God tell me I needed to read it. About a month later, I got in a car accident. It was very serious. A passing car stopped, and before even asking if we were okay, they began to pray over us. They continued to say that God was with us, and I was at peace even then. I was hospitalized, and it turned out that I was fine, and so was my baby. I know that this was because of all the people praying for me and the safety of my baby. Shortly after the accident, I had to be hospitalized again for gallbladder problems. At that time, I had to get an ultrasound. My sister was with me, and we both saw that the baby's head was deformed. The doctor couldn't say why. I was very upset, and when I went back to my room, I found a card left there by Judy. God again spoke to me, and the card said, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you a future and a hope. It's from Jeremiah 29, 11. I called Judy, and she put me on her church prayer chain immediately. They also prayed for me at the pregnancy center. The next day, I had another ultrasound, and the baby's head was perfect. I know that God did a miracle, and I know that there is real power in prayer. My roommate doesn't believe in God. Through all this, she has been watching how God's people have cared for me, and now she's even asked me to take her child to church with me. Please help support the center. What I thought was an awful thing turned into a wonderful blessing. Now that my son is a miracle for God. This is Daryl. They always wind up embarrassing me. Did you see the cheeks on that little guy? It's like he's made out of Twinkies. I keep wanting to do this. I some kind of an urge that I get when I'm around those little critters. Our church has become more and more involved with the Santa Clarita Valley Pregnancy Center. The involvement began a few years ago. A friend of mine, Frank Korochek, who's a lawyer, is now offering legal counsel. We're giving regularly as a church. My wife and I are involved in sponsoring a career group at the church called Salt Company that has become more and more actively involved in supporting the pregnancy center. And, of course, my family is involved as Dave's as well um, with that uh, kind of support as well. Uh, The little ones in our family aren't... uh, particularly interested in this issue yet. They're too young to understand it. So my seven-year-old daughter, instead of walk for life, she sort of walks for a popsicle. (laughs) But eventually, I'm sure she'll catch the vision as well. Recently, uh, or in the past, I've been asked to debate this topic. 
and to be involved with it. It's one of the passions of my life as well to to speak to this particular issue and enlighten people whenever I can regarding what's going on in our nation today and even the world at large. Recently, my memory was refreshed on this topic as I sat through a meeting of faculty and administration and we were reminded that the number of 18-year-olds is beginning to decline. Well, it's 1991 and Roe v. Wade occurred in 1973. So what would we expect if the number of children in our country is declining by 500,000 to a million per year? We would expect that kind of decline eventually to catch up with us here at the Master's College. And so in days to come, you'll be able to look around the chapel or the classroom and see empty seats, and I'm sure that those empty seats to some measure are a representation of those students who would have joined you in this chapel had they been given the opportunity to do so. But they weren't offered any choice and therefore they're not here. I'm sure you know that an abortion occurs in America on the average of every 20 seconds. So if we were to pause for 20 seconds, since we're having this chapel during regular office hours, probably three would be occurring every 20 seconds. And in the time that I'll be giving you this presentation, over 300 unborn babies will have been aborted across our nation. The statistics are staggering. Two years ago, this past Christmas, the issue became even more personal for me and for the loveliest lady in chapel today, my wife, who happens to be joining me for this, she came down with the flu two years ago at Christmas, and I was taking care of her and, and our, uh, at that time, our five-year-old, Rachel. So I took them into the doctor. The doctor began to talk with Beth, and he said, well, I'd like to prescribe some medication. And my wife said, before you prescribe the medication, maybe you ought to give me a pregnancy test. And I said, say what? <laughs> and the test turned out to be positive. We were surprised, to say the least. We had had a garage sale and sold all the things that uh, go with having kids. And we began to get congratulations, some of them hearty, some of them half-hearted, lots of wisecracks. People were calling me Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> I have to admit, I'm feeling somewhat virile and feel like this may be the capstone of my midlife crisis. And things are going fine, and my wife finally schedules a visit with the obstetrician. And the obstetrician says, I must caution you regarding you and your husband's advanced age. How could they say that about me? Sure, my temples are a little gray, but I just color them for credibility so that uh, students will think I have some kind of wisdom. And the doctor said, because of your age, you'll probably want to consider an amniocentesis. What's that? Well, it was developed by a surgeon or a doctor named Sir Arthur Lilly some years ago. 
And uh, the purpose of it was to save the life of a child if there was RH incompatibility between the mother and the unborn child. And the procedure involves uh, drawing fluid from the woman's womb. And uh, so I said, well, why would they draw that fluid out? And the purpose or the answer to that was to see if the baby's okay. And so my question is, well, why would you want to see if the baby's okay? And they said, you're the doctor, you figure it out. And so this procedure that was started out to save the life of a child has sort of turned into a search and destroy procedure, if you get my drift. If the child is somewhat defective or is considered to be less than what the parent would want. And so a subtle shift occurred in the medical community. Initially, the doctor said to me, congratulations, you're going to have a baby. And now the doctor says, we need to examine the fetal mass. Well, first they attack my age. Now the culmination of my marriage is being called a fetal mass. It sounds like what you get when you combine a kindergartner with Play-Doh. Well, my wife gave birth to the cutest little fetal mass you've ever seen. And we enjoy them more than ever. I think it's because of my age that I enjoy rocking more than I ever have at any point in my life. So now I can hold him when I do it. And he is just a darling little guy. He's, his eyes are as big as hubcaps on a Buick. <laughs> There's a war that's raging. And according to Dr. C. Everett Koop, whom I respect immensely in this particular battle, we live in a schizophrenic society. He says, we will fly a deformed newborn baby 400 miles by airplane to perform a series of remarkable operations on such a youngster, knowing full well that the end result will be far less than perfect. We will ship food to a starving nation overseas and at the same time supply arms to its enemy. We will feed another starving people beset by famine but we will make no attempt to ask them to try to control their population. We will stop a cholera epidemic by vaccine in a country unable to feed itself so that the people can survive cholera in order to die of starvation. Our government subsidizes the growing of tobacco while the Surgeon General warns that smoking endangers health. While we struggle to save the life of a three-pound baby in a hospital's newborn intensive care unit, obstetricians in the same hospital are destroying similar infants yet unborn. Little wonder why people grow up confused in such a schizophrenic society, wondering where the values are really placed. And the war is raging in the Santa Clarita Valley. I made a copy of our local yellow pages and thought, well, I'll just bring this in. And you'll notice that sandwich in between two pregnancy centers that would represent our values, would represent the kind of counseling that we want to give, the kind of positive help and encouragement and support that is so necessary are two abortion clinics. 
and one of them emphasizing the fact that it comes at low cost and that there will be complete confidentiality. A girl that's in our career group at Grace Baptist Church was living with a local physician in a beautiful home up on top of a hill in Valencia and was provided food and, and uh, a nice place to live as well as a very, very nice allowance that went along with it. And then she found out that this guy is the leading physician in our valley in providing abortions and suddenly she felt very bad about accepting that and being a part of that. But it infiltrates our entire community. It's no game. It's a multi-million dollar industry in America today. And people will not easily let go of all the wealth and the style of living of the convenience that is accrued through this particular industry that permeates our culture. We live in a nation that is divided over this topic. It will be no different than the civil war that occurred in the middle of the last century. And that civil war occurred over the same topic and that is, is there a group of individuals that is in fact non-human? And the non-humans in that particular, those who were labeled, I should say, as non-human during that time, would not stand for it. And other groups who were labeled as non-human would not stand for it. But today we have categorized a group as non-human who is unable on its own to stand up and defend itself. They can't march in Washington. They can't cause a political fracas. They can't boycott the companies that support it. They are a silent group that has been labeled as non-human and are being treated as though they do not have the intrinsic value of other people and therefore they must have representation in order to survive. Now both sides have extremists. And I'm not here to uh, wave the flag for the extremists on the pro-life side. But I will say this, that in my opinion, sitting on the sidelines is passively submitting to what's going on. You cannot put your head in the sand. You cannot act like this one's going to go away. You cannot just live life in a bubble, in a vacuum, a cocoon, and say, this doesn't affect me. It's not really an issue that I have to grapple with, because if you live in that cocoon, you will passively be endorsing the activity that's going on. Because we're not fighting at this point to keep abortion from occurring in terms of a legal sense because the floodgates have already been opened by Roe versus Wade. We are now fighting to save those who are being aborted on a daily, hourly, minute, moment by moment basis. And if you don't join the fight, you're passively endorsing the other side. What does abortion interrupt? Many of you probably know this already, but of course uh, an egg comes together with the sperm. Each one of those contain 23 chromosomes. Neither can live by itself. 
can't reproduce. But when they come together and form that fertilized egg, there are 46 chromosomes there. And life begins because the ability to reproduce begins. A number of different things start at that point. Within 17 days, the fetus is developing blood cells. By 18 days, there is a heart that's in place that's beating. Within one month, there are 40 pairs of muscles that have already developed that are, that are actively involved. And it's at this point that maybe the mother becomes somewhat aware that she's pregnant. And all of this is already in place. At 45 days, the brain is functioning. At seven weeks, there is a recognizable fetus there. You can tell it is a baby. At eight weeks, the brain is intact. Ninth and 10 weeks, glands are functioning. It can squint, it can swallow, it can move its tongue. At 12 weeks, the hands are formed. At 12 weeks time, there are fingerprints, the same fingerprints that will go through life with this individual. At 13 weeks, it sucks its thumb already and it begins to recoil from pain. There are a number of people that are interested in the pain that animals experience in our culture, aren't there? but very few that are willing to stand up and talk about the pain that a fetus would experience. At the fourth month, it's eight to 10 inches long. By the fifth month, it's all there. It's a time of lengthening and strengthening. Skin, hair, glands are present. And at the fifth month is when the mother can begin to feel the movement. By the sixth month, it will respond to light and sound, hiccup, it can be awake or asleep, it can hear, it can live outside the womb at the sixth month. This is what is being interrupted through the process of abortion. And there are four common techniques that are used in this process. The first is called DMC or dilation and curtirage. And it's usually used between the seventh and twelfth weeks. And essentially the surgeon comes in and he scrapes the wall of the uterus. And in scraping the wall of the uterus, the life support of the child is removed. And not only that, that scraping tears the fetus apart. And it's essentially dismembered and, and uh, secreted from the mother. More than 66% of abortions involve a suction abortion or a suction method. And this is when a powerful suction tube is placed into the fetus. And then the remains are placed in a jar and the parts are recognizable as they move through the tube. I would invite you to pick up a pamphlet that is written by Carol Everett entitled What I Saw in the Abortion Industry, a very powerful document. And you need to read that and be aware of it. And you need to read what these people do in order to callous themselves so that they can do this day after day. And the jokes that are made as body parts pass through the tube as it's being removed from the mother. On one instance, as a small eye went through the tube, the nurse who was holding the tube said, here's looking at you, baby. The third method is called salting. And it's used later when the first two might cause too great of a hemorrhage. It's used after the 16 week mark. 
And at this point, concentrated salt solution is injected into the mother. And the baby breathes it in and is poisoned. And the salt burns the inside and the outside. And it takes approximately one hour for this to occur. The last method, which is very uncommon, is called a hysteronomy, which is similar to a cesarean section where the baby is removed. And many of these babies that are removed are still alive. And so the doctor will choose to work on the mother and to sew up that surgeon, that uh, surgical opening and leave the baby over here. And after he has attended to the mother for quite some time, he comes over and then normally the baby has expired after that procedure has occurred. And there is no court in the land uh, that will convict that doctor for killing that child through neglect. Because, the, because that is considered to be part of the abortion process. And of course we've created many problems through that. Now I believe that abortion is wrong. Obviously you know that already. And I believe that it's wrong for a number of reasons. I believe it's wrong because human life is special life. Human life is special. It's sacred. It's different. One of the reasons that some of us got involved in sort of a Christian environmental movement years ago is because we sensed what was happening in the environmental movement in America, and that is animal life and plant life was being elevated by environmentalists, and we were being told that it's the same as human life. And so we treat a stream, or we treat a tree, or we treat a dog, or we treat a cat in the same way that we would treat a person. One of the leaders of that movement is a man by the name of Dr. Robert Williams. And this is what he says. The fetus has not been shown to be nearer to, human, to the human being than is the unborn ape. Even the full-term infant must undergo many changes before attaining full status of humanity. Only near the end of the first year of age does a child demonstrate intellectual development, speaking ability, and other attributes that differentiate him significantly from other species. Get what he's saying? No difference. And so we would defend, if we would buy into that, we would defend plants, animals, different things the same way we would defend a person. Now listen. That is the direct result of buying into the theory of evolution, right? I mean, if all these things have a common denominator, if we're all just some kind of organic mass that has evolved from the same thing years ago, then we would expect to someone to say that life, no matter what form it takes, is equal to other types of life. But we don't believe that. We believe in a special creation that God has specially made men and women, and they stand at the pinnacle of creation. We believe that, that men and women are given a special dominion over creation, that God has placed the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom under the dominion of man. And because he's done that, we have a special responsibility environmentally to care for that kingdom and to not mistreat it or to not abuse it. But we do it for a different reason. And the Bible tells us that God makes men and women in his own image and likeness, which is different 
than any animal or any plant that was ever created. We're image bearers. And so abortion is wrong because it takes something which is special and sacred and treats it as though it is life just like any other form of life. It's also wrong because human life, I believe, begins at conception. And you say, why would you think that? <clears throat> How do you know when a person is a person? And of course, that's at the essence of the whole problem, isn't it? When does a person become a person? Well, let me ask you a question regarding a fetus. First of all, is it alive? Is it alive? Well, I would define life as having metabolism, the ability to grow, the ability to reproduce, and the internal powers to adapt to an environment. That's life, as far as I know. If something does that, it is alive. The pro-choice people will, would say, well, in order for something to be alive, it must be viable. What does it mean to be viable? It means that it is not dependent on something else. They say, well, this fetus is dependent on its mother for life, and therefore it does not have life of its own. If you take a simple class in ecology here at the college, you will, re you will realize that all life is symbiotic. All life depends on other life, doesn't it? How long would we make it without plants taking our carbon dioxide and producing oxygen with it? How long would we make it without the food stores that we find in plants and animals? How long would my month old son make it without his mother or someone else to care for him? Nothing is truly viable. Everything depends on something else in order to receive its life. Something may become more independent over time, but nothing is completely independent. And therefore, it can be alive by having all these things, rather, and doesn't necessarily need to be viable. Let me tell you something. If you buy into the argument of viability, you are opening the door wide open for euthanasia. Because when is someone no longer needed? If they're not needed at this end of life, in terms of of having viability as an unborn child, what about at this end of life when they can no longer work and support themselves or be a productive member of society? They are no longer viable either, are they? And so the viability argument is a scary argument. Well, is it human life that we have here in the womb? Well, what other type of life would it be? Is it a lizard? Is it a cactus? Is it a zebra? Is it a guppy? Is it a puppy? Is it a kitten? What is it? It's human life. Well, when is it a person? And this is a more difficult question. When does it become an individual? That's harder to answer. I think one of the greatest answers came out of a debate that occurred in Colorado. And in Colorado, abortion is legal up to the minute before the child is born. In a public debate between the Colorado Right to Life and the Mountain States Women's Abortion Coalition held at the University of Colorado some time ago, the debating representative asked the question, if you were pregnant and gave birth prematurely to an alive child at six and one-half months, would you consider a child a, a human person entitled to the same protection of the 14th Amendment as you are? The answer was yes, most definitely. 
that child born at six and a half months would, would receive the protection of the 14th Amendment, the right to life. She was then asked, if you were pregnant with an unwanted child and had that alive child aborted two days before full term, which is possible in California, or excuse me, Colorado, would you consider such a child a human person entitled to protection under the 14th Amendment? And the answer was no. You have to give them credit for remaining consistent. The questioner then commented, it does not seem to matter how long the zygote embryo fetus is present in the womb as to establishing its identity as a person, but rather whether or not the zygote embryo fetus is born, is allowed to be born. The question is asked, what magic occurs at birth which changes a potential person into an actual person? And there was no answer given. There can be no answer given. Because let me ask you the question, should a child be aborted one minute before birth? And the answer is no. Well, should the child be aborted one minute before that? And the answer is no. Well, what about one minute before that? And when do you get to the magic moment when a person is not a person? And the answer is that you never do. Because no one knows the answer to that question. We know intuitively in our hearts that a child is a child one minute before birth, but we don't know how far to back up for when that occurs. Biblically, the Bible is not as philosophical as we are. The Bible does not distinguish between biological and spiritual man. In Genesis 4.1, it says that the woman conceived and bore, and it's all put together there. And she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord, referring to one process and that Hebrew parallelism there. In Job 3.3, 3, it says the night a, a man is conceived, ascribing a full-grown stature to someone that is conceived. In the biblical sense, there is no separation. Jesus became fully man at the point of his conception, not at the point of his birth. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, if a woman is hurt who has a child inside of her and it causes a miscarriage, the person that hurts her is responsible legally to her husband for the loss that occurred. God predestines individuals while they're still in the womb. He predestined Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. In Psalm 139, 13 through 16, the psalmist talks about the work of God in predestining a person before they're born. In Luke 21, 23, Christ says, Woe unto them who are with child or who are nursing young children in that day when, when the tribulation comes. And he says that with that parallelism, meaning that they are in the same situation, having a child in the womb or nursing a child. The Bible just doesn't make that, contra that, that difference or that distinction that we make. And that's why abortion, and this sounds really strong, I know, but abortion fits my understanding of what murder really is. What's a murder? One, a person is killed. Secondly, the killing is intentional. Third, an innocent is killed. Fourth, there's a sinful motive involved with it, and that is murder according to the court of law. 
What would be the sinful motive? Maybe getting back at an impregnator. Maybe the inconvenience that comes through an unwanted. Maybe it's embarrassment. Maybe it's fear about what might happen. Maybe it's selfishness. A poem by Clifford Bejama. After the dinner of sexual intercourse is enjoyed and men begin to feel the sharp effects of knowing then the deep responsibilities such acts inevitably bring, they find the truth too hard to stomach well and order up the first of several after-dinner cure-alls. So the potent liqueur of theological air is predictably served in delicate glasses and usually has the sweet bouquet of satisfying reasonableness, alluring temperate men to sip so slowly those lethal spirits, which make them feel so warm and right inside until the laughs subside and tides of numbness swell their bones so they remember truth no more. In ancient Roman days, the Romans would eat for the simple pleasure of eating, just because it tasted good. And they created what was called vomitoriums, where they could go into these places and force themselves to vomit so that they could go back into the room and continue to enjoy the delicacies that had been placed before them. And this would repeat itself because they simply wanted to gratify themselves sensually. And the abortion clinics of today have become the modern day vomitoriums where people can enjoy sexual promiscuity and think that there is no responsibility attached to that God-given ability to reproduce. And they can go in there and somehow relieve themselves of the responsibility and walk away as if nothing had happened. But I would invite you at the two tables that are set up today in the student center to go up to those counselors and ask them if people walk away unscarred and unhurt from it. And you'll find that they don't. That they carry that with them. That God's forgiveness is great and his healing is wonderful and he brings people back and he restores them and he heals them. But yet, even with that kind of activity and that action, there is a price to be paid. Abortion makes the wrong person pay for the problem, doesn't it? It makes the wrong person pay for the problem. Well, I have a lot of things to say, but I'm pretty much out of time, and I want to wrap it up. The Supreme Court has continued to let us down in, the, in our country. They have shown consistent poor moral judgment. There are just about anybody walking up and down the streets can tell you what pornography is, right? There are only nine people in America that haven't got it figured out, and they all sit on the Supreme Court. I've known what it is since I've been about six or seven years old. Capital punishment over a six-year period in our country, 78,000 murders occurred, three people were executed for it, and of course they legalized abortion. The political line today is I'm personally against it, but I won't impose my religious belief on anybody else. 
Well, if that were true of rape or prostitution or drugs or murder, I'm personally against rape, but I'm not going to impose my religious convictions on anybody else. I'm personally against murder, but hey, that's a religious thing. So undesirability in the eyes of one person should not equal a death sentence. No one is interviewed regarding abortion. And according to this article in Newsweek magazine, abortions are beginning to occur more and more in our country on the basis of, an, of unwanted sex. People wanting a boy. And they go in and they find out through amniocentesis that it's a girl and they have the child aborted. And we're basically catching up with the nation of Korea right now who has been in the business of baby shopping now for quite some time. And you choose the baby before it's born and if it's not the one you want, then the abortion occurs. A new re a recent development is they're finding out that the tissue in aborted fetuses can be used to be transplanted into terminally ill people. And that tissue, if placed in the right parts of terminally ill people, will renew them and invigorate them. And you talk about an ethical problem that your generation is going to have to deal with, and that is, are we actually going to begin to harvest fetuses for the medical well-being of others who are already alive? We're just on the leading edge of that particular question. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a battle that's being raged. Let me encourage you to get involved with it. Let's join together and give unborn babies the benefit of a doubt. Let's join together and do what we can. And I'm not asking you to, to make a big life-changing commitment, although some of you may want to do that. A young lady in my economics class, Janelle Jones, who's working with the Grace Ministry, and they're going to have a table set up in there. These are the heroes of today, the people that are doing these things behind the scenes. But you know, there are things that we can do. February 23rd is the Walk for Life. And I'm going to get out there and I'm going to walk with my kids and, and just have a great time doing that. At the same time, we're going to raise some pledge money and, and keep these ministries funded. Keep them going. Keep the offices open. Maybe one of you would, one of you young ladies would be interested in counseling on a regular basis. You know, right now there are more clients than there are counselors here in the Santa Clarita Valley. They could keep all the offices going full time if there were counselors available. If you'd like to get involved with some counselor training, there's a real big need right now for bilingual counselors as well because there's a large Hispanic population here that only speaks Spanish. And these ladies need someone who can sit down and talk with them and explain positive alternatives. Hey, it's one thing to do negative things, right? To fight the movement. It's another thing to roll up our sleeves and get positively involved on the front line offering wholesome, creative Christian alternatives to this thing that is sweeping our land. Let's join together in fighting it. Let's stand up. Let's not be passive. Let's do what we can. Let me close our time with prayer.